Welcome to NSN Daily. Chris Murray, I'm Brian Samudio. Jenna Holland directing us behind the scenes. A lot to get to today uh, when it comes to uh, Nevada baseball. What a great start considering what happened last year, which I'm sure is just a control-alt-delete chuck that season. Uh, we're going to talk about that, how they started their season, uh, winning three out of four out on the road. Uh, mailbag Extra, and Chris, you've been getting a ton of these questions about Brandon Cahill and what are the chances he comes back home and plays at Nevada. Um, I, I think we've, we've got a number of differing opinions, and there's a, kind of, a, a lot of different reasons why it would be a good move and why we think – it's not going to happen, but uh, we'll get into that. But uh, first off, let's start off with uh, some news coming out of Las Vegas. Uh, Mountain West Tournament, it will not have fans. You and I have and I know a, a number of inquisitions about this from, from viewers and boosters and fans. But uh, despite the fact that they could have had fans, they are going to choose to go without. Yeah, according to state bylaws, if you have at least 2,500 fixed seats in your arena and you're holding a larger event, you can have 20% capacity. Thomas and Max, a big building, almost 18,000 seats. So, uh, you know, the Mountain West could have opted to hold up to 3,600 fans per game under those directives, but it's a pretty long process to be able to be approved by that. You do have to submit a plan to the local health district. So in this case, it'd be Clark County. They'd have to approve it. You'd have to have social distancing and a bunch of other uh, bylaws that you'd have to follow. So I think it might have just been a bigger headache um, than it was worth pursuing for the Mountain West. The Mountain West did specifically cite the uh, different strain of COVID-19 that's starting to come into the United States and in Clark County as a potential worry. And they said that the safety of the players uh, was the first and foremost concern that that was their uh, reasoning and rationale for not allowing fans in kind of disappointing, even not even allowing fans for, uh, you know, players, parents. Um, that's that's got to be difficult. I thought maybe they would, you know, go with something like a 500 person plan. So you can get family members in there for seniors specifically, but um, they're not even allowing that. It's basically going to be the team, the coaches, uh, a couple of media that's going to be limited and they're going to move forward with fanless games. So um, it's definitely going to be a different situation than every other Mountain West tournament where there's usually a pretty raucous crowd that builds up over the days into a championship game. Um, that's pretty uh, energetic, but that's not going to be the case this year. It'll be interesting to see what some of these other conferences do. The pac 12 plays in Vegas, the West Coast Conference plays in Vegas. Will they also go fanless or will they try and, you know, use that capacity and try and bring in a couple thousand fans to get some of the revenue uh, that you would get for a tournament typically of this size? So the Mountain West has opted to go fanless. And, uh, you know, I, I think the Pac-12 will probably allow fans, but I guess we'll see how that all works out over the next few days. I understand it would have been a headache and you're jumping through extra hoops and yeah, player safety is number one. But even 500 people in an 18,000 seat arena, so, so you can, so mom can come see you play, grandpa can come see you play. Even if it was just family and close, close members of your family, each player gets two people or something like that. Um, I don't know. I'm disappointed in the decision, um, and I'm one of those people that stays away from people left and right. I'm walking through a grocery store and I'm keep still keeping my distance. So it's not like I'm one of those people that wants to open everything up tomorrow. And and you're right, it brings up. Such a disappointment because the basketball tournament that we get to cover and the privilege of covering at the Thomas and Mac every single year is such a culmination of so much hard work, sweat, and desire over months and months, accumulating in this celebration of the game. And the fun part for me is you go up, oh, Fresno State fans are here, or up, oh, there's Barrel Man from Wyoming coming walking in, and you'll see the the smattering of different colors and. And, and that sort of just camaraderie, and even though it's a rivalry, 
and suddenly Air Force fans are rooting for Utah State, and then suddenly Wyoming fans are rooting for UNLV. You you get that, and we're not going to have that. And it's the reality that this COVID thing is still it's still hanging around. It's going to be a different environment. And talk about having to create your own juice, and how teams will. You know, we saw it differently this year where teams on the sidelines have become such cheerleaders for their own teams. I mean, you never, you never heard college basketball teams at Nevada uh, standing up and chanting defense, defense, and you're, they're creating their own juice. It is going to be a weird environment. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, there typically aren't a ton of fans in the first few games, even up until the semifinals. You're probably looking at like three or 4,000 fans, but it always sounds really loud because those are like the passionate fans that spend a lot of money to go to this tournament. Um, and there's so much on the line that they just get very energized and very vocal. Uh, and there are usually huge swings of momentum and, uh, you know, crowd support throughout the games. And you'll have fans, like you said, of maybe New Mexico there watching a Nevada UNLV game and they're rooting for one specific team because they get that next so it is always kind of a cool and different environment and it all does culminate with the championship game which tends to be pretty packed by the end because you're uh, into saturday or sunday and now people might fly down just for that specific game but um, you know the players will be used to this nobody's really played in front of crowds very much in the mountain west the jurisdictions have really limited that um you know we did see nevada play at unlv in football and they allowed 2,000 people into allegiance stadium so it definitely was doable i mean the mountain west could have put together a plan and i think they would have gotten approval from clark county which is shown specifically with that nevada unlv game that they're okay approving the plan if it's well thought out and that's something that you can actually go out there and execute. So, uh, you know, for whatever reason, the Mountain West opted against that. They're going to lose some revenue as a result. But, um, you know, I think if from their perspective, they just want to get through next week uh, with a tournament played with yeah. no is being forfeited and if they thought even there was a five percent chance that having fans in there could lead to a positive case among their players um i think that that is something that they probably took very seriously and said we're not you know it's not worth it for maybe an extra million dollars in ticket revenue so that was their ultimate decision and at least they got it out there early i mean now you know fans can be able to plan and make sure that okay we're not gonna be able to go to the game like we don't have to get a hotel and tickets and all that kind of stuff so um, that was the ultimate decision. But yeah, definitely a lot of people on my timeline were very, very disappointed to see that because they wanted to go out there. And a lot of these guys haven't been able to actually go to a game this year. That would have been the first chance because Lawler has not really allowed fans other than 50 to 100 people. This could have been the chance to actually go see Nevada play in person in a huge uh, stakes at the Mountain West tournament. But for Wolfpack fans, that's not going to be the case this year. I respect the decision. Don't get me wrong. I, I respect the decision. It's just, it's disappointing. I, I, I mean, I think, I think all of us were hoping by by March, we would uh, have a few teeth left after getting kicked in for the last year. But uh, I respect the decision. Um, and I can't confirm this yet, but we are hearing rumblings that Nevada's going to make up its games against San Jose State, uh, like March 3rd, March 5th, maybe. But uh, hey, don't quote me on that. We're hearing it. We're hearing it that it has not been confirmed. Once it is confirmed, we will uh, we will let you know that. And one of those games was originally scheduled to be on Stadium, one of our our sister networks, which means that we would have been able to air that game here on Nevada Sportsnet. So if we're able to uh, confirm that in the coming days, hopefully that's coming up. We will uh, definitely uh, pass that along to you. I want to give some final kudos to the uh, Nevada women's swimming and diving team that claimed 31 individual and four relay all Mountain West awards on Monday. 14 swimmers and divers, four relay teams all earned Mountain West honors. Of course, we can't go through 31, but, you know, the, the future looks bright with this team. And, I mean, I know Swim and Dive isn't a team that gets a ton of press, but 
you know, Chris, you mentioned it yesterday. They lose literally one impact athlete off of this team that lost to UNLV on the fin- in, in the final event by one-tenth of a second. Yeah, I mean, they've kind of been building up this roster. Last year, they lost only one senior. This year, all seniors have the option of returning because of the shortened season. Only one is not coming back. So you're talking about losing only two swimmers over a two-year period. So next year should be one of the best years in school history, maybe a chance to send some teams to NCAs and things of that nature. But to put it in perspective, I mean, the Mountain West held 21 uh, events at its Mountain West Championship. Uh, The Wolfpack uh, collected 19 medals in those 21 events. So you're basically talking about almost a medal per event six gold, five silver, eight bronze. Uh, The area where they kind of came up short was the the depth, and that should be improved next year. As I mentioned yesterday with the scoring system, um, it's better to finish like fifth and eighth than actually go out and win the event because of how they score, and it really does reward that depth, and that's a little bit where Nevada got caught up and why they fell short against UNLV is at the very top end with all of those medals that I mentioned. They were very strong. Now, can they get people finishing in that 10 through 20 range, which adds a lot of points to your team total? So, um, yeah, it should be a really great season for Nevada next year i'm sure they're super disappointed by how it came out this year but to think that they only had one regular season meet and they were as well prepared and they swam as well as they did last weekend um just kudos to brendan bray to Jin Lee Yu, and the entire uh, swimming and diving team specifically the athletes who went out there and put in the work and actually did get those results because it was probably more than any sport their season was uh, kind of messed up from a scheduling standpoint more than any other but they still came out at the championship meet uh, and, and, you know, we're at a championship level, just as you mentioned, a tenth of a second behind winning their uh, second gold medal uh, in the Mountain West Championships. Coming up next year on NSN Daily, T.J. Bruce and the Nevada baseball team. Last year's nightmare of a beginning of a season it has been thrown in the rearview mirror. A big weekend against Cal Poly on the road. We'll have a wrap of that coming up next. Well, Chris, uh, you know, the offseason was probably longest for the Wolfpack baseball team. Um, after just having a nightmare of a start in 2020, they lose the rest of their season due to COVID. Uh, guys got to think about this in the offseason, and and it just grinds on an athlete or anybody who has, you know, a failure or has something bad happen. You're like, God, I want to get back out there. That's one of the things about baseball is that there's another at-bat coming usually, but this time around it just didn't happen because of, of the coronavirus. But uh, – for Nevada to go down and win three out of four, especially after uh, really not performing in game one and then sweeping three in a row against the Mustangs on the road. It was an impressive uh, opening weekend. Yeah, I mean, they had a really strong weekend. Uh, as we mentioned, Cal one of the better teams on the West Coast. They usually make it to a regional. So uh, this is an opponent that should be a postseason caliber opponent to win three out of four. And I was specifically really pleased with how Nevada played on Sunday. So Sunday they were up big. Uh, they coughed up four, a four-run lead in the last two innings, three runs in the ninth inning to go into extra innings. And they were able to have the mental fortitude to say, okay, we just completely blew the game, but it's not over. And then they go out there and they score three runs in the 10th inning. And they actually used 11 pitchers in that game and only 10 innings. So that was a complete team effort for sure. Um, but, you know, I think there was some mental fragility with this team after the slow start last season. And it kind of just snowballed on them. So for them to be able to kind of blow a big lead and rally the troops, and, and win Sunday, follow that up with a win Monday. And there's a lot to like about how this season has started. I mean, they've had two newcomers who have been tremendous this year, Jacob Stinson and Dario Gomez, a couple of position players, both have an OPS above 1,100. So um, that's those those guys have been huge impact players. And I think you have to be happy with how the pitching has, has uh, panned out so far. Uh, they're still going to be searching for a third and fourth starter, but 
Owen Schartz was very wild in his start. He's a potential pro prospect after this year. He walked seven guys in four innings, uh, but he also struck out seven and he didn't give up any hits. So um, if he can dial it in and become the ace of this team, I think the potential for this group is really strong. If those newcomers that I mentioned continue to hit anywhere near the level that they did this last weekend. I mean, you look at what Jacob Stinson did. He's a six-one buck eighty outfielder out of uh, Amador Valley High School in Pleasanton, California. Starts the season 0 for 5, goes 0 for 2 in game 1, 0 for 3 in game 2, and then comes out the final two days and goes 5 for 7 with a pair of doubles and an RBI. I mean, just kind of comes out and goes, all right, okay, fine, just reset and go back to it. He's batting 417 in uh, 12 at-bats, 5 for 12. 7 for 17 in his first weekend was was Dario Gomez batting 412. And the, the thing I felt bad about these two guys, they don't even have their pictures on the website, man. Uh, wait, what are you going to do? To get your picture on the roster on the website, you go out and bat over 400 and help lead your team to uh, three out of four against a, like you said, a postseason contender, and you don't even have your picture on the website yet. Come on, let's let's get that fixed. Uh, Nevada doesn't have any time to kind of rest though either because you've got UNLV. They open up Mountain West Conference play uh, next weekend against Rebels. Yeah, usually a very strong team. I mean, UNLV's had some real good teams the last couple of years. Uh, we'll see how this new format works out as well. They're playing the doubleheader on Saturday and then a single game on Sunday. They do have unlimited rosters this year. Uh, in the Mountain West, you can only travel a certain amount, but I think your pitching depth is definitely going to be tested in a doubleheader kind of situation. It's not like you can have the same guy close out all three games because uh, you don't want to pitch in twice on one day and then pitch in again the next day. So uh, there'll be some different strategies involved for sure, but it's a nice test for Nevada coming out of the I don't think many in the Mountain West are projecting them to be toward the top of the conference. They were picked fifth out of seven teams in the preseason poll by the coaches. So, uh, you know, Nevada's tended to do pretty well when they're the underdogs in baseball under TJ Bruce and not so well when they're the favorites. So we'll see exactly whether that trend continues and with them kind of being looked down on by some teams and coaches in the Mountain West, whether they'll be able to rise above that. And, uh, you know, this first test is going to be big for them because UNLV is one of the better teams in the conference for sure. TJ Bruce has been pretty open about how the fact that he does not like doubleheaders. I know they want to get in as many games as they possibly can. What are your thoughts on the format? I mean, as a ball player, I hated playing doubleheaders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. I think for first and foremost, they don't want as much exposure as possible, right? So if you're playing in only two instead of three, uh, that's a bonus, but I think of the bigger part is financially, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously not making as much money this year as a conference. So they're not paying out the schools as much. So if you can cut off a day of hotel costs, cut off a, a day of food and all that kind of stuff, uh, you're going to save some money. I think it's going to be a one-off. I don't think you're going to see this moving forward. I don't personally have a major problem with it. I think, uh, you know, to the basketball, um, you know, series that they're doing as well, playing two games in three days at one location. Um, you know, you got to do what you think you can do to be sa as safe as possible, cut down costs, uh, and still have a normal season. And I think this is still going to be a rather normal season. So it's not ideal. Uh, as long as it's only this year, I'm cool with it because, uh, you know, you have to make some adjustments to make sure that you're able to play this season. Nevada, of course, uh, opens up with, you know, multiple, multiple games out on the road. This is not a new thing. It's happened every single season, um, mainly because of weather. I mean, half the time you can't play baseball games in Nevada in February. Uh, their first home game is March 20th. It's a doubleheader against Fresno State. I have not seen details. I mean, they have allowed limited fans for men's basketball. Uh, have, have you seen anything? I Remind me, I haven't seen anything announced about baseball or softball. Uh, I mean, you just go with the state rules. So the state rules right now are 100 people, but it is going up uh, next month to 200 people. So you can see, uh, you know, maybe 100 to 200 people at Pacoli Park. Uh, you know, it, it's 
not going to be a robust crowd by any means, but I think just to have some people out there and have some support, I think will be meaningful for the players and the coaches because they put so much work into trying to put the best product on the field as possible. And to go out there and play in front of nobody has to be a really weird thing. Like with the basketball team, you know, they've thrown out the band, they've thrown out the cheerleaders. They've tried to build up the atmosphere to a degree. And I think they'll end up doing a very similar thing in baseball. I think the thing with baseball is you're outside at least. So the air circulation is as good as it can be. So I think you can feel a little bit more comfortable putting some people in there um, because Coley Park doesn't have fixed seating of 2,500. They don't get to hit that 20% capacity, but the max gathering limits right now are hundred and we'll go up to 200 shortly. So you should see a good uh, cluster of people out there, hopefully spread out and uh, wearing masks as well. What if you put the howlers and the cheerleaders down the left field line? Well, what if they become the first college baseball team that I know of to have a band in the stands? Why not? I mean, it's 2021. Anything goes right now, Chris, but uh, yeah, Nevada, UNLV, uh, next weekend, uh, starting uh, February 27th with a doubleheader at 11.05, 11.05 on Sunday, the 28th. Want to listen to it, CBS Sports Radio 94.1 FM, if you want to check it out. That's also 14.50 a.m. here in Northern Nevada. We'll be right back with much more coming up on NSN Daily right after this. All my first were on this field. The first mound I ever tamped was here. First mower I ever rode on was here. First tarp I ever pulled was here. So all my memories and experiences are a lot of this ballpark. I mean, I never stopped to even think this would be where I am now. When she was done with her internship in 2017, I told her, I said, the second a full-time job opens up, I'm gonna call you, so be prepared. Because uh, I already knew that the second that I can get her back here, I'm going to. Just three years after landing a full-time position, Leah Withrow was recently named the first female head groundskeeper in Reno Aces history. It's so surreal still because I still see myself as the intern here and I still see myself growing and improving every day. Not only is Withrow the first female to hold the title in Aces history, she's currently just one of four women in professional baseball to do so and is the only at the AAA level. This is this is real. This is my job now. Like the field is mine now and it's my responsibility to put the best product out there for the fans and for the staff and for the players. Like this is now on me. But Withrow says this wouldn't have been possible without her mentors helping guide her along the way. I think all the male bosses I've had previous taking chances on me and letting me prove myself and forcing me to grow. If you want it bad enough and you work hard enough and you show up, that job can be yours. Even though you've only maybe ever seen a male in that position, that job is yours if you want it bad enough. And I wanted it bad enough. There's this saying that I love, be so good they won't forget you. And Leah's work speaks for itself. She puts in her blood, her sweat, and maybe maybe some tears behind uh, it, <laughs> behind the ballpark um, once in a while after a hard day put in. From putting in countless hours to now leading the charge in renovating Greater Nevada Field. I'm so proud that she's got the chance to do a really great work this year. I personally can't wait for the season to start and for people to see her in that role. Specifically when we see dads bring their daughters to games and they have the chance to see a girl leading the grounds crew. That's going to be a really special moment for all of us. After 19 months, baseball is just weeks away from returning to Northern Nevada.
Swinging a drive, deep to right field, way back, it's gone! If I would have known that was the last game we were playing in 2019, I wouldn't have been so excited for it to be over. I would have wanted it to last a lot longer because I'm, I miss it so much. Amazing what we've seen uh, with Leah Withrow over there at uh, Greater Nevada Field. Channing Kelly, uh, thank you for that piece. Uh, you look at her bio, I mean, Gardnerville native. So, I mean, Chris, we'll get you your chance to uh, to uh, brag about Douglas County, some of their finest. Uh, but uh, when you start as an intern and you work hard, look what can happen. Shannon Kelly is a great example of that. Started as an intern with us and uh, now just uh, cooking right along. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible to see what she's been able to do over at Greater Nevada Field. I mean, starting as an intern back in 2015, then getting hired full-time in 2018, and then now landing this full-time head groundskeeper position, taking over for Joe Hill, who was there for the past couple of years, and then uh, beforehand over that, Eric Blanton. So there's only been three uh, head groundskeepers in Reno Aces history and now she is named the third one and she is the only female in AAA baseball to be doing so and I just think that's incredible how she's breaking these barriers once again I mean she said you know in the story there that you know anyone I want this to show that anyone can do this it doesn't matter who you are where you come from if only a man has done this position for before if you want it bad enough you can get it and that's exactly what she is doing over at Greater Nevada Field now. Chris, this isn't a surprise, uh, a Gardnerville native uh, doing this. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, we've got some pretty special people in northern Nevada, but I'll let you, uh, I'll let you brag on your hometown. Yeah, I actually saw a Facebook post, uh, a post by the football coach at Douglas High School, Ernie Monfiletto, a great guy, um, you know, kind of supporting her and, and very proud of her promotion as well. So a uh, very tight-knit community. And yeah, a lot of great people have come out of Gardnerville and done really good things in, in northern Nevada up here in the Reno area as well. And, and she's among them. And obviously, she didn't get an easy task. It's, it's fun if you go over to the Reno Aces Instagram page and they're putting out pictures every day of literally completely scraping the top six inches off the entire baseball field and starting over like that's not an easy project to oversee and for the aces to be able to employ this project with her taking the lead to, to me just shows you how much they think of her that she's going to be able to pull this thing off and create a major league baseball uh, quality field out there uh, in a very short time frame uh, by scraping off that top six inches and, and just redoing everything at the ballpark well the thing is too is that it's tough to grow grass in this area period i mean you look you drive around everybody's neighborhood and uh, there's not a lot of green grass. I say, I mean, in my neighborhood in the Northwest, there's a lot of AstroTurf in people's front yards. And it looks nice. I actually thought about doing it to mine. But uh, just to do it, Shannon, you don't have to have just a love for the game of baseball. You have to love dirt. You have to love hard work. You have to love getting dirty. Uh, you have to love being outside and not knowing how long your day is going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, Leah said, you know, there are days we put in 12, 14, 16 hour days, you put in these long days, but in the end, it's all going to pay off. You know, she said when, you know, you come out on game day, and you just see the players and you just see all of your work coming to life and you see the fans coming into the ballpark and everything is just, it's just happening, you know, so fluidly on game day and that she was such a big part of that in her role before and now it's kind of you know she took a step back and said wow this is all in my hands this is kind of a scary thought that everything is here but you know she credited her bosses beforehand who have helped her along the way all of her mentors uh, Leah went to school up in North Dakota and she said that the conditions were very different 
up there. And, you know, it's crazy. When I first chatted with her a couple years ago, when she received the promotion, um, you know, she said, people don't realize how this is actually a degree. You go, go to school for sports turf grass management. There, there is a science behind this degree and you're not just going out there and we're going to go lay some sod and, you know, hopefully the grass comes to life. It's nothing like that at all. And I don't think people truly realize that at first, how much goes into this process. Chris, can you think of another job where the person that literally is responsible for creating the scene is somebody who is very behind the scenes. I mean, maybe a greenskeeper at a major golf course for a PGA Tour event or any greenskeeper where you walk out and you, man, the course looks great. And you don't think about who did it for you. You don't think about that. You just go, hmm, this place looks really great. Uh, baseball, same thing. You walk out there, you walk into Greater Nevada Field. And I remember my first time walking out there, I was transported somewhere else. Suddenly I wasn't in Reno. I was somewhere else. You walk out and you just... It is amazing, just the colors and the smells and just, it's so vivid. But I don't know of a job, maybe aside from a golf course or somebody who takes care of a, a football field or maybe lays down a court or a hockey rink. We nearly we learned about hockey over the weekend, how tough that is. But I don't know if there are many jobs where people don't know who the star of the show truly is. Yeah, I mean, and her job and the quality that she does it at will impact the players as well. I mean, they're going to be judged on how well they play defensively and in the infield, what that infield looks like and the quality of it is going to play a big role in whether you look good defensively or not. So, um, you know, the amount of work that they have to put into that to make sure that their players play at their peak performance is a huge deal. And, um, you know, it's funny that Shannon mentions the school that you specifically go to to be able to learn this stuff, like to be able to have the knowledge at that point in your life, 18, 19, 20 years old, that, you know, I want to do this specific thing. And that means I have to go to this specific school because it's pretty rare to be able to know that when you're that young and then carry it out to the point where you are the head groundskeeper a groundskeeper at a triple a ballpark is just uh, an amazing ascent for somebody who's still very very young so um yeah she is a star of the show and uh, as you mentioned kind of behind the scenes but it's nice that shannon went out and did this piece and kind of brought her to the forefront so people in the community recognize all the work that she puts in uh, to make sure the players look their best when they do hit the field shannon the first thing that really comes to mind when we have somebody who's so talented um working in our market which is you know market 100 and something is, all right, what major league team or big time market is going to pluck her up and take her away? Granted, she's from Gardnerville, so you hope that she's going to stick around here. Do you feel that she has major league aspirations? And if she does, go for it. Yeah, she definitely does. That was something I had asked her as well. And she said, you know, I asked her, I said, where do you see yourself in five years? And she kind of joked, you know, she said, I don't even know what I had for breakfast today. But <laughs> Uh, yeah, she said, you know, in five years, she hopes that, you know, she can be somewhere in the big league level. And that was her goal when I interviewed her a couple of years ago, as well as to make it to that point, but to be able to do what she's doing now at home. She said, this is exactly where I want to be. And she said, it's great having her family so close. They're able to come to greater Nevada field, you know, to watch her while she's at work because they do have such long days over the summer. But yes, I mean, she would love to make it to those levels. And, you know, it's crazy because she's just one of four women in professional baseball that's doing that right now. There's two women, she said, one uh, for the Orioles and one for the Tigers. They're the head groundskeeper. They're women as well. And then she's just the only one in AAA baseball, but there's two women in minor league baseball. She's one of them. So pretty crazy that the numbers are so low and there's so many teams that she's just one of a few. Yeah, it's an amazing facility. Uh, Chris, just to get on the Reno Aces for a moment, um, we haven't talked about them in a, in a few days. 
uh, they're still planning on an on-time start and uh, and to have a, a full schedule when it comes to uh, baseball at Greater Nevada Field. That is still on track. Yeah, I mean, they're supposed to start the first week of April. I know uh, minor leaguers are uh, going to spring training, um, you know, like right around April 1st. So uh, that might be a quick turnaround, but, you know, they've laid out the schedule and they are going to play 142 games, whether it starts April 6th or whether it starts a little bit after that. Um, you know, that is the plan is to get in a full season. I think it's highly important for the development of these players. I mean, the minor league system has been completely revamped this year. Uh, you're talking about going from 160 teams to 120 teams. The pay scale is different. The game schedule is different. Um, you know, they're not calling it the Pacific Coast League anymore, which is kind of sad. Now it's just the AAA West. Um, so they want to make sure that these players are developing at the minor league level. I mean, that's the only way that you get better is by having those reps and they're going to do that this season. And uh, Reno is a beneficiary that despite all of the chaos that we've seen the last 12 months, not only uh, in the sports world, but just in general, we've seen Reno 1868 go away. The Reno aces are locked in. They're going to be here for 10 years with the Arizona Diamondbacks. As we mentioned, they're going to have a brand new field surface. Um, they put a lot of money into the actual facility with LED lighting, with the scoreboard, with more nets. Um, so this, when everybody is able to go back, and it's not going to be a full return this year, I don't think, um, but there should be a partial crowds. Uh, you know, it's going to be a completely new experience again. And I think people are going to maybe support the ball club a little bit more than maybe pre-pandemic, just because they understand what it means to be able to be outside, to be able to be around other people, to be able to socialize, because that's kind of been taken away over the last 12 months. A lot of new things at Greater Nevada Field and uh, a new manager in Blake Lolly. And uh, we are scheduled to get Blake on the show uh, for tomorrow. So uh, we're excited about, about that. Shannon Kelly, appreciate the time and great story. Thanks. Thank you, guys. We'll have more on NSN Daily right after this. Murray's Mailbag usually comes out on Wednesdays uh, on this show. Chris Murray opens up uh, the Murray's Mailbag on uh, Sunday afternoons, and uh, you can check into that at by Chris Murray on Twitter. Sometimes we get a question that just deserves more recognition or like basically this time around, we've had a lot of people asking the question, Chris, and multiple uh, viewers and readers wrote in asking about uh, the possibility of Brandon Cajo, the Ale Cajo, the former uh, Reno high school football star who took his house to Alabama. Um, he has entered the transfer portal. What are the percentages or chances that he comes home to play at Nevada? What are your thoughts? I think it's decent. I put it at 20% odds. I mean, Nevada has a couple of things they have to sort through. They have given out all of their scholarships and two for next year from this year's recruiting class. But where there's a will, there's a way on getting scholarships available for players. So I don't think that's a huge issue. Uh, Vicajo obviously committed to Nevada and then decommitted late in the process to sign with San Diego State. So I don't know if there's any, not necessarily bad blood, but feelings there that uh, might have to be soothed over. But uh, I mean, this is a five-star recruit. This is literally the only five-star football recruit to ever come out of Northern Nevada. So, um, you know, Nevada is going to be interested. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of teams are going to be interested is the problem there, right? Uh, USC, uh, Brandon was very high on the first time around. I think UCLA, Utah, Oregon, BYU, who we originally committed to before then committing to Washington and then signing with Alabama, uh, also should be in the mix there. So I think you're going to see him come to the, either the Pac-12 or the Mountain West or BYU, one of these West Coast schools, get a little bit closer to home. I wouldn't give it a slam dunk for Nevada. I know there was a, a picture of Brandon and uh, Toa Tawa uh, on an Instagram account not too long ago. I, I know the Tawas and the Cahos and the Sewells are all very close. So, um, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of people leaning in his ear to come back home. Now, there are pros and cons with that. It's not always great being back home, uh, I think, especially in this circumstance. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a guy who would step in immediately uh, and play for Nevada. And whether he'll be eligible immediately is a big question because he hasn't graduated from Alabama. And unless there's a one-time transfer rule that's passed, you still have to sit out a year if you do transfer to a new school. I think this move is all about getting on the field at linebacker and showing that you can potentially be an NFL level player. And if you come to a school like Nevada, you're going to get on the field. Now, if you go to a school like an Oregon or USC or Utah, you're still going to be going against three, four star, maybe even five star recruits to be able to play. So there's still that issue with getting to the top of the depth chart. So there are a lot of pros certainly for Nevada. I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk by any means. Um, I would throw San Diego state out there. Maybe he wants to play with his brother Vi in a defense. That's always one of the best in the nation who really does a great job of developing linebackers. So there's going to be competition, but there's a very easy argument from Nevada's perspective about why brand would be a good fit for the Wolfpack and vice versa. All the schools that you've mentioned, I've heard as possibilities. I've even heard UCLA as is a possibility i have not heard washington um because he originally committed to washington maybe there's a, a burnt bridge up there but um yeah i i if, if i'm brandon i just got to get on the field he never really got out of the shadow of being the special teams guru and he was very good at it he was a special teams player of the year uh, multiple times but you got to get on the field and where are you gonna where are you gonna get on the field you're gonna get on the field at san diego state you're gonna get on the field at nevada and probably Utah are, are probably would be my three to look at. Because you, if, if you're going to walk in and think that you're going to walk right into USC and start, that that that's tough. There's going to be that that elite elite competition at U, USC, even UCLA. Um, Utah is appealing because you know you're talking about a pretty good Pac-12 program, but at the same time, you know it's it's a place that uh, that I know he he has said that he likes, and members of his family have told me that he likes. I would love to see him in a Wolfpack uniform, but like you said, it's tough coming home. And when you are the focus, you are, you have all those eyeballs on you. It's tough for a person who is still very, very young. And when everybody has these expectations, everybody's tugging at you. Maybe, maybe you want to get away. Does he go to San Diego State? I don't know. I think all of the factors are there, but maybe he doesn't want to play. Maybe he doesn't want to follow his brother somewhere. I don't know. Uh, maybe he says, man, I want to play right next to Vi. You know, I don't, I don't know. It'll be very, very interesting to me, to me, to see where he ends up. But uh, yeah, the uh, I, I saw the same sort of Instagram post that you you talked about with the with the, the Tawa family and and having a, a poly Polynesian sort of bond. It's a very special bond, and and I I would be uh, I would not rule Nevada out. I have it about twenty five percent, but um, I would probably be pretty surprised if he ends up uh, ends up coming to Nevada. Do you have a favorite mailbag question? I can't wait to take this segment with you because there's a couple of things that I think we really disagree on. And one is oh. the Sandlot kids versus the Bad News Bears. Okay. Well, we'll tease that for tomorrow. Yeah, I got a question about who would win an actual baseball game between the Sandlot kids and the Bad News Bears. And I was doing a little bit of research because I'm not as well versed with the Bad News Bears. Came out a little bit before my time. And there's actually an article online where somebody breaks down every single position. It's first base, so-and-so versus so-and-so, second base, and they go all the way through it. So, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll debate on that tomorrow. But I've got a pretty strong feeling that one of those teams would come out on top. Yeah, uh, it'll be fun. Murray's Mailbag is always a lot of fun. Uh, you can catch it on our website, NevadaSportsNet.com. Just go to Twitter and follow Chris at by Chris Murray. How many words this time around? Uh, 3,500. wasn't too robust. Um, so, yeah, it was a nice – Got in and out of it, not not too too much work, probably about four hours this time. Four hours and two ibuprofen. That's all <laughs> around. Coming up next here on NSN Daily is one of the greatest sluggers in Major League history hanging up his spikes. Did his wife 
let uh, let a secret out of the bag on social media. We'll talk about that next. You know, Chris, sometimes uh, things get uh, the cat gets out of the bag, maybe a little bit early in, in sports news and just news in general. And I don't know if that's the case here, but it certainly kind of maybe looks like it. Um, on an Instagram post by Albert Pujols' wife, Deidre, uh, she uh, posts a picture of her Hall of Fame husband, future Hall of Fame husband, along with a caption that says, quote, today is the first day of the last season of one of the most remarkable careers in sports. Uh, however, no official word has been saying, and later on she would actually rewrite the post saying it was the last year of his current contract. Uh, oops, <laughs> is that what we're looking at here? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody knows the end is coming. I mean, if he didn't have the contract that he had, he probably would have been out of baseball for a little while now. Uh, you look at the last five years, his on-base percentage is below 30%, and he's still made $160 million. He's almost a negative war player during the last five years. So um, the end is definitely here. Maybe uh, Albert didn't want that news out there quite yet just because he wanted to maybe make that announcement. Or maybe, I mean, he's not like a very public person in terms of giving me all the shine. So maybe he just wanted to play out the year and then retire after the fact. So not like this big retirement party kind of thing that we've seen with some other players like David Ortiz or Derek Jeter. Um, I think he's more than, you know, he deserves either way. If, if he wants to be feted at every series that he has, uh, this is one of the 10 best hitters in the history of baseball. Like, don't let the last few years kind of outshine what he did for his first 15 years, which was just truly amazing. Like, this guy was an offensive weapon from the right-handed side that we've maybe never seen before. Uh, you know, you can throw out Barry Bonds and the Ted Williams, but uh, among right-handed batters, just from a hitting perspective, uh, he was great. He was insanely great. Like, he's on the Mount Rushmore of right-handed hitters ever. He's on the Mount Rushmore of first baseman, and that's – Really hard to say, given how many great first basemen have come through uh, Major League Baseball. So, um, you know, it, it is kind of foreshadowed that this was going to be the end because this is the last year of his contract with the Angels. But, um, you know, he, he's definitely a guy who, uh, you know, rewrote the history books and did it in a very positive way as well. I mean, you never heard steroid allegations with him. He's done great things for people with Down syndrome, uh, uh, very good uh, philanthropically as well, um, a great teammate. He really rounded out his game, became a very good defender and base runner as well. So one of the best that the game's ever uh, had for sure. 662 career home runs just past the great Millie, uh, Willie Mays to, uh, to get to fifth on the all-time list. Uh, when people throw out first ballot Hall of Famer, especially in baseball, baseball writers really hold that close to their chest. You got to say he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, right? Yeah, I mean, unanimous. There's only yeah. unanimous ever in Mariano Rivera, and people have really not wanted to go that route because the Babe Roots and the Ty Cobbs and all of those great players were never unanimous. But, uh, you know, that seal was broken with Rivera getting that honor. And for Albert Pujols, he should be unanimous. There's no reason not to say this guy is not a Hall of Fame baseball player or and person as well, you know, with that morals uh, clause that's in the Hall of Fame ballot. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely goes in first ballot without a doubt. I mean, maybe he does hang around more than one year and tries to get to 700 home runs. It's probably not going to happen this year. So if he wants to pat the stats a little bit more on the back end, I wouldn't be greatly shocked. I mean, this is a guy who loves playing baseball. So, you know, maybe he just wants to play, even if it's as a part-time player. But, um, you know, this is why baseball is great as well. This was not a high draft pick. This is not a guy who was paid a lot of money coming out of high school or uh, his community college. Um, you know, this is a guy who slipped through the cracks and became one of the greats to ever play the game. I, I, I think you have to soak this up because I don't know if we're ever going to see someone hit 600 home runs again. I don't know if we will. I mean, you look at 
after pool holes, you go down the list and Miguel Cabrera at 487, Edwin, Edwin Encarnacion, 424, Nelson Cruz at 417. There's no way those guys are going to get to 600. But if, if you are pool holes, I, I get that you are a humble guy, but if you're his agent, and I, I'm probably going, dude, let's announce this so that people can come out and thank you. I know that you can't have the fans, but he deserves that, doesn't he? he I mean, I, he, I think he deserves that every single stadium he goes to, they have an Albert Pujols day and they, and they celebrate the great career of this guy who, like you said, is an incredible philanthropist still back in St. Louis, even though he's playing in LA. Yeah. I mean, he's more than deserving for that. Uh, as you mentioned, I don't know if he wants it or not. I don't know if he wants to be the spotlight and who knows how many fans are actually going to be in some of these stadiums to kind of give him that ovation. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of cool when you saw either Kobe or Dwayne Wade or a lot of these athletes have done it. You know, uh, I think I remember David Ortiz getting like a rocking chair or something. So everybody yeah. has their own little like jokes and their own little things that they give him. And, uh, you know, it'd be cool to see him play a game in St. Louis, probably not going to happen this year uh, unless they both somehow get to the world series. But I mean, that's where his legacy was really built, where he was a great player. And, you know, the Angels tenure hasn't been great. Um, you know, anybody would have signed the contract that he signed and played out the string to make sure that you get that money. But, um, you know, St. Louis was the place where he became a superstar, by far the best player in baseball. Um, whether somebody gets to 600 home runs, I mean, it's becoming a home run kind of game. So I wouldn't rule that out. But that always was a huge number. And you rarely ever saw players get there to get to 700 potentially. Uh, you know, that would be an amazing feat as well. Um, so, you know, he's 41 years old. This is probably the last year, but maybe it just wasn't the right time for his wife to come out and say that. Yeah, I, I, I would love to see a, uh, kind of a farewell tour. I love seeing that for guys that have class acts to the game and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I think you're right, David Ortiz. I think the Yankees give him a, a rocking chair or something like that, something that's maybe a bat or something that, that represents the city. If, if, you, if you're St. Louis, you give him a Terminator. He's the machine. Got to give him a, a Terminator with a bat or something like that. But uh, yeah, it would be uh, tough to see him go because I've always really enjoyed uh, Albert Pujols, uh, just the way that he carries himself as a gentleman uh, swinging a pretty big club. We'll be right back to wrap things up here on NSN Daily right after this. number of great guests coming on the show this week. As I said, we're scheduled to talk to uh, Blake Lolly. Chris, I'm excited to talk to him just about, you know, the move coming back to Reno and, and, and how he's literally skyrocketed uh, through the system there with, uh, with the Diamondbacks. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious to see how he views managing. It used to be such a personality management kind of thing. And with analytics being so big in baseball and launch angle and revolutions per uh, second on throwing the baseball, I'm just curious how he approaches getting players better, but also having that personal touch and feel. So it'll be cool to be able to talk to him and, and see how he's ascended so quickly through the game. We're also going to have Kirsten Moran's interview and feature on uh, Jake McGee, uh, more local baseball star who is now signed with the San Francisco Giants. For Chris and Jenna, I'm Brian. We'll see you next time.